All right. Thank you, David, for leading us in that time of singing and praise. And now, my dear brothers and sisters, it is time for us to hear the voice of God speaking through his word, the Holy Scriptures, through the instrument of human preaching, which the Lord has appointed for his church to communicate his will to his people so that they might be his witnesses in the world. And so I'm delighted and honored to get to do that with you again this morning. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up at this time to the book of Exodus, and we'll be looking at chapter 23, verses 1 through 3. Again, we're continuing our study through this epic story of the Exodus, of God rescuing his people out of slavery in Egypt, faithfully and miraculously bringing them through the wilderness. And now they're at Mount Sinai. God is making his covenant with them. He's binding himself to them in a covenant of marriage where Yahweh, the Lord, is the spouse and Israel is the bride. And he's preparing his people to be holy. And that means to be set apart so that when they go into the land where they're going to be surrounded by pagan peoples, they will be God's witnesses. That's the point of the law. It's not keeping all the rules will make them right with God because as we're going to see time and again, they fail just like you and I. But the goal was to make them holy, to make them set apart so that when they go into the pagan world of Canaan, they will reflect the glory and majesty and truth of God. And so that's where we are. We're continuing our study through these various law codes. And this morning I've chosen Exodus 23, 1 through 3. And so we'll begin by reading those three verses together. We'll say a prayer and we'll get into our study this morning. Exodus 23, 1 through 3, this is the word of the Lord. You shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. You shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you and praise you again for this opportunity to be able to gather together in your name. We thank you that wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Lord, we thank you that even as the apostle Paul would write his letters from a distance, Lord, even so now when we are physically separated, yet we are united through the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for uh, the technology that is available to us, Lord, so that we aren't waiting long periods of time for letters to be mailed and carried, just as the early church experienced when receiving letters from Paul, Peter, James, and John. But Lord, we thank you that we are able together to immediately receive the truth of your word, and that we are to hear preaching, Lord, that is your sovereignly appointed means of communicating timeless truth in a timely manner. And so, Lord, it is my prayer that you would bless the meditation of my heart and the words of my mouth so that it would be good and pleasing in your sight and profitable for your people to fulfill the calling you have on each and every one of their lives. Lord, I lift them up to you now and pray you would bless their hearing of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, several years back, Oxford Dictionaries chose the word post-truth as their word of the year. Now, if it's true that indeed we are living in what many are calling a post-truth culture, what are the implications of that for proclaiming the truth of Christ? Is it possible to proclaim the truth of Christ in a post-truth culture? On the one hand, from the perspective of heaven, my answer is yes. It is possible to proclaim the truth of Christ, even in a post-truth culture. For the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, Romans 1.16. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to cause division between soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. And so Christians should just keep on proclaiming the truth of Christ, regardless of what is happening in American culture today. And we must simply trust God that even though the sower doesn't know how it is when he sows the seed that he goes to sleep and wakes up and he finds that the seed is sprouting, and yet he knows he will receive a harvest if he continues to do so, even so you and I must keep proclaiming the truth of the gospel. And we must not be deterred or disheartened in any way. We must continue to fight the good fight. We must continue to proclaim the truth of Christ. Now, I wish I could end just there, but I don't believe that I can. I do believe that we need to preach the gospel and nothing should stop that. And yet, dear brothers and sisters, I must, from another perspective, that is an earthly perspective, I am compelled to also reply with a reluctant no. Because the truth of Christ requires that we understand the basic difference between truth and falsehood as such. You see, the gospel is not more or less true than any other kind of truth. Whatever is true is true. All truths are equally true or else they are not truths. Something that is only mostly true or partially true is partly a lie or falsehood. So what I think we detect when we feel like, yes, Pastor Mike, I get what you're saying. If something's true, it's true. And it doesn't matter whether it's the gospel or two plus two or something like that. And yet in my heart, I also feel like, but, but there is a difference. And if you feel that way, well, you're absolutely right, but it's not regarding the degree of truth. Both 2 plus 2 and Jesus is the Son of God are both true, and they're equally true. What is different is the significance of the truth. Now, that is also a truism. Not all truths are equally meaningful or significant. And I think that is what Christians want to insist on. But what we don't want to do, friends, and I think sometimes well-meaning believers make this error, we throw out the importance of rationality in order to simply try to hold on to our understanding of the gospel. So some people will say, no, uh, the gospel's true, but you know other truths are not true or they're less true. But that's actually logically incoherent. That doesn't make sense. And even if on the surface it seems like we're highlighting the gospel, I would actually say in the long run, we're creating a culture that makes it less believable to adhere to the gospel. 
because the gospel is a public truth. As the Apostle Paul said when he was on trial before a Roman governor, he said all these things were not done in a corner. The things regarding Jesus and his miracles, rather the gospel was public truth. They weren't private, subjective, relative truths, but rather facts in the original sense of that Latin word, factum, which means something that has been done. And having been done cannot be undone or altered. And so this very concept of truth generally, truth as such, truth as that which corresponds to reality is a friend and a helper to the truth as it relates to Jesus Christ. And so I want to insist that while the gospel is infinitely more significant than any other truth, it is not therefore more true. All truths that are actually true are equally true. And yet the gospel is nevertheless not more true than any other truth. In fact, Jesus himself taught that the gospel message presupposes the ability to discern truth as such. Let me give you an example from the gospel of John. One night, if you'll remember, Jesus was approached by one of the religious leaders of Israel, a Pharisee. This man came to Jesus secretly for fear that anyone might see him during the day. This man, whose name was Nicodemus, inquired of Jesus how it was even possible that a person could be born again. So Nicodemus didn't just want to know two plus two. He didn't want to just uh, discuss epistemology and, and how do we know what we know, etc. He wanted to know the greatest of truths. He wanted to know the mystery, the spiritual truth about regeneration or being born again from above. And he couldn't wrap his mind around this spiritual concept. And in a sense, we ought to relate to Nicodemus because not all spiritual truths are easy to grasp. And we shouldn't necessarily expect everybody to easily grasp heavenly truths because many times they are difficult to arrive at. And so while Jesus desired to communicate the greater truth regarding the new birth, so he wants to talk about a more significant truth, and yet he recognized Nicodemus needed help in order to arrive at this greatest of truths. And what did he do? How did Jesus respond? Did Jesus just say, well, believe, just have faith? No. Actually, Jesus went back and he referred to the general realm of human knowledge. That is truth as such. And so Jesus began by appealing to a lesser truth about reality, namely the nature of the wind. Jesus pointed out how the wind is an invisible phenomenon which you cannot see, you cannot control, or always predict, especially in the ancient world, and yet you know the wind is real. So the idea that something is not real unless you can see it, actually, we know that's not true. Everybody knows that's not true. That is a public truth. We know the wind is real even though I can't see it. I know gravity is real even though I can't see it. And I can't just say gravity is, is a private truth. It's an opinion. It's a figment of my mind. For I can say that all I want and it might fly. 
in a secular university classroom. But when I go to jump off a building, the law, the truth of gravity will quite literally hit very hard. And so Jesus is appealing to truth as such. Jesus says, even as you understand the truth about this reality, namely the wind, so it is with everyone who is born again from above by the Spirit of God. So do you see what Jesus did there in John chapter 3? Nicodemus couldn't understand a more significant truth about God and the new birth, the Christian life. And so what did Jesus do? He went back and appealed to general truth, general knowledge that's accessible to all human beings, regardless of their religious background. And he pulled truths and principles from the natural realm, from general truth, and he used them to build a case for more significant spiritual truth. And in doing so, Jesus employed one of the famous uh, seven principles of interpretation of that great Rabbi Hillel, which was also corresponding to the Greek philosophical argument tool known as a fortiori, from the lesser to the greater. Jesus concluded this discussion with Nicodemus, reasoning from general truth to specific spiritual truth in verse 12 with this saying. Listen carefully to what Jesus said, quote, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things. Notice that. Jesus is saying, if you can't get normal general truth, right? Uh, the wind itself was not a, a private matter of faith or spiritual truth or anything like that. So Jesus is saying, if you can't even agree on public truth, on just general human knowledge regarding earthly matters, how in the world then, how will you understand heavenly things? Do you see that? Jesus presupposes that truth as such, truth generally undergirds, supports, and even enables, helps, it's the handmaiden, to communicating spiritual truth. But imagine this. What if Nicodemus had said, I don't believe in wind. What if Nicodemus had said, it might be windy for you, but it's not for me. Or what if Nicodemus said, it can be windy and not windy at the same time and in the same sense. Now, friends, those are nonsensical statements. And you would have to conclude that either Nicodemus was joking or else he had completely lost his mind. But worse yet, imagine if an entire culture began to deny reality in this very manner. What if truth itself, general truth, became merely a tool to be manipulated in order to accomplish the whims and desires of irrational mobs of people. Well, friends, I don't think we have to imagine too hard. I think we are there. I don't think we've reached rock bottom, but we have certainly reached very low in regarding the realm of truth, simply truth, not even the greater, most significant truth of Christ, but truth. That 
which corresponds to reality. In fact, just this last week, the liberal, atheist, political commentator, Bill Maher, reminded his audience of that scene in the movie Lawrence of Arabia, where Lawrence tells his Bedouin allies that as long as they stay a bunch of squabbling tribes, they will remain a silly people. Mark concluded his remarks by saying, well, we're the silly people now. A culture that is hell-bent on burning Dr. Seuss books while arguing about the gender of Mr. Potato Head in the context of pitting everyone against everyone else by suggesting truth is merely a social construct used to control others, is indeed indicative of a post-truth culture. And so I ask, while Christians are to keep on preaching the truth of Christ, regardless, because it is still the power of God to salvation, should we also do what we can as Christians to reestablish the value of truth generally in our culture today? I believe the answer is yes. As the great medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas once said, philosophy is the handmaid to theology. In other words, what Aquinas meant is that truth in general and that's what ultimately philosophy at its best. The word itself means love of wisdom. Love of wisdom. In other words, truth in general provides a basis for understanding the greatest of truths, which to the Christian is the gospel. Just as it would do no good to give a Bible to someone in a language they cannot read. You could say, here you go, but if they can't read the language it's written in, so too, from an earthly perspective, it is the case when Christians try to assert the truths of faith when truth as such, truth as that which corresponds to reality, has itself been denied. But the million-dollar question is this. How might Christians work toward recovering truth in our culture in order to serve the truth of the gospel? Let me ask that again. How might Christians work together toward recovering truth in our culture? I mean general truth. Truth is that which corresponds to reality in order, here's the purpose, so that, in order that, to serve the truth of the gospel. I want to propose this morning that Exodus 23, verses 1 through 3, gives us three of the most timely, practical, and powerful steps towards recovering truth as such in America today. These three verses, which contain three commandments, which were intended by God to be critical components of creating a culture of truth and justice in Israel. And though we are not under the Mosaic Covenant with its various penalties and other unique features, yet Christians rightly point 
to the character of God is revealed in Jesus of Nazareth as our guide to truthful and authentic living. And so let me take you now through these three commandments in Exodus 23, 1 through 3, that I am suggesting are powerful, timely, practical tools that can help our culture get back on the right track regarding the reality of truth. And number one, that is refuse to enable the spread of falsehood. Number one, refuse to enable the spread of falsehood. Look at verse one. You shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. Now, today we are living in an unprecedented culture of falsehood. We've certainly had lies since the very beginning of human history. According to the Bible, the very first lie was told in the Garden of Eden, and it was in the mouth of the serpent. You shall not surely die, the serpent said. And really, the history of the world and what John means, for example, in his gospel, is the world is that system of human thinking and reasoning that is built on the lie. That lie that truth can be known ultimately and completely apart from God. The desire to suppress the truth of God while somehow hanging on to truth as such. And as we see over time, that is less and less possible. That cultures devolve. They, they, they might get better technologically, but they tend to regress morally. And that is exactly what we are seeing in the United States of America today. So even though lies have been around from the beginning, and in that sense it's not new, and yet I would say the invention of the internet has made the spread of lies, the speed of the spread of lies, the pervasity of lies and falsehoods to be on a scale we've literally never seen before in human history. I believe that is one of the reasons why we're entering into this culture of post-truth is because the internet, though I'm not going to argue it's a bad tool and we're using it for truth right now. So we're redeeming this tool of the internet. And yet we cannot turn a blind eye to the fact that it has been a tremendously powerful tool for lies, for evil to be spread. Now, there's a couple of things that I need to say in regard to this command to refuse to enable the spread of falsehood. And that is number one, we need to refuse to enable the spread of falsehood intentionally. And we normally use the word lies to refer to falsehood that is intentionally told. So for Christians, we are never to lie or listen, not just lie, but enable a lie. Okay, so in other words, if you find a news story or a blog and they tell a lie, you are not to copy and paste that and send it to people and then say to yourself, well, I didn't lie, they did. Well, no, we are not to be disseminators of lies either. And actually, in the Hebrew, it makes that very clear. It's actually the word to carry. You will not pick up and carry. You're not going to be somebody who enables lies to be mobile. If a lie comes your way, you need to stop it. 
That is the job of a Christian. That's actually something we need to do day in and day out. And it is harder now than ever before because you're being bombarded with information. And so Christians must never intentionally enable a, a story that is false to, to go on. Now you ask, well, why would, why would a Christian do that? Well, the truth of the matter is sometimes Christians can get so wrapped up in worldly things that they think they ought to fight fire with fire. In other words, if this group over here is worse than the group you're a part of, and they're using lies to some effect, then we think, well, I'll lie too, because what I might accomplish with my lie is better than what they're accomplishing with their lies. But friends, as a believer who understands that the bigger picture is a culture of post-truth is being created, we cannot do that. The ends does not justify the means. Just because our group uh, whether it's whether it's a church or or whether it's a, a political movement, we cannot enable lies to go on and justify them because we think uh, the end result will be better than if we didn't. Wrong. The end result is always worse. It's just further on down the road sometimes than we realize where we end up in a culture that is entirely post-truth. So we are never to intentionally simply spread and enable lies to go on. But secondly, and I think this is difficult, we need to be very careful of unintentionally spreading lies and misinformation. Now notice in our text, verse 1, it doesn't say anything about intent. Notice that. 23 verse 1. You shall not circulate a false report. Does it say if you know it's wrong? Does it say, do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness if something else, if your intentions are bad or whatever? No. Verse 1 is irregardless of what your motives are, which means whether intentionally you're enabling falsehoods to spread or unintentionally. If we are being the vehicle of picking up and carrying falsehood, we are violating this this commandment. We are violating this biblical imperative. Now, why would a Christian or how would a Christian unintentionally spread misfault, uh, misinformation and falsehood? Well, I think there's two basic reasons. Uh, number one is confirmation bias. In other words, the, the way we are as, as human beings, and this is whether you're Christian or not, Many times, we are attracted to news sources we want to believe. In other words, many people don't choose news sources or believe articles because they've done research to make sure the evidence which corresponds to reality supports the propositional truth claims in said article, but rather they are attracted to the news story and inclined to believe that it's true simply because it already confirms something they want to believe. So Christians are susceptible to this like anybody else. If we see a new source that, that seems to, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, well, something we believe is right, they're, they're saying that, that, that kind of proves this. Like if a study, uh, a study comes out and says, hey, this supports a Christian view on, you know, some ethical situation. Oh, yes, it, yeah, I'm going to share that all over the place. But what if that study is false? 
what if it's not true? What if it's a hoax? Uh, I've seen many Christians um, pass around stories from the Babylon Bee thinking they were true. And if you're not familiar with the Babylon Bee, it is a satire Christian website. So it's these Christians got together. They've got a great sense of humor. I think the Babylon Bee is hilarious, by the way, but it's a satire website and they'll take stories and put up fake headlines to give people a laugh. But many people actually thought these stories were real. And so they would copy and paste them and send them and see, look what's happening. Look what this group is doing. And it's like, no, it's a joke. It's actually a joke. It's not real. And I don't think Christians in that scenario were intentionally lying to anybody. I don't think they were intentionally trying to spread misinformation. But nevertheless, they enabled, they picked up, they carried misinformation. They miscommunicated things to people. And so as Christians, we have to be very, very careful that we don't just simply allow that, that desire to find news sources and ideas and articles and books and videos, YouTube videos, whatever it is, that supports what we already want to believe. We have an obligation to the truth because we have an obligation to God, who is the ground of all truth, to verify the things we read. And that means many times as Christians, we're going to be a little bit slower sometimes when we're responding to current events. I know nowadays it's kind of funny that many pastors have the pressure on them, the peer pressure, to be like a breaking news source. Breaking news. I just discovered this from, from the White House or from this down and at the courthouse and this and that. And it's, and it's weird because I get it. I mean, if, if there's some truth, genuine truth to be broken, sure, I'd, I'd love to be one of the first ones to share it. But the problem is I owe, I owe a debt to the truth. And my desire to look like I'm in the know and I'm the first one to report a story cannot override my desire to make sure it's actually true. Now, it blows me away that people can share false stories and people just, they de they're like, whatever, well, it's what I wanted to believe anyway, so I don't care. But I believe all Christians and especially pastors have a duty to the truth. I cannot simply be the first one to share a news clip or a video or anything else if it is not verifiably true. Because what I'm doing is violating Exodus 23, verse 1. I'm picking up and carrying misinformation even if I didn't intentionally do so. Which means one of the other things we have to watch out for as Christians today in this regard is slothfulness. Again, part of it is there's a, a laziness. We, we don't want to do the hard work because to be perfectly honest with you, verifying news sources, stories is actually hard. Have you ever done that? The next time you, you read the news and you're going to believe something, stop yourself and say, before I believe this, I'm going to try to find out if I can verify this concretely. And many times what you'll see is it's actually very hard to do. When you start doing that, you'll start looking at various sources and, and you'll try to get different reports, just like a police officer would do at the scene of the accident. Do you think a police officer shows up at an intersection where there's been a multi-car pileup and he goes, uh, I'm going to pick you in the red car because I like red. And let me let me ask your story. And you get the story from the driver in red. And then, and then other people are lined up waiting to tell a story that we're in the blue car and the green car and the SUV and the pickup truck. And you go, no, I don't, I don't want to hear it. I just, I got the red car. No. The, the police officer would take the report from everyone. They would get everybody's perspective, not because they're sitting there like, I'm going to believe the red car driver, I'm going to believe. It's because I want to take all of this into account, all of it from all the perspectives, and from that, 
I want to try to extract what I can tell is the truth. And then I will also visibly observe the, the accident scene and I'll see, you know, where the cars were and, and take pictures of all the cars. How far away did the parts land? That might say something about uh, the rate of, of speed upon impact and, and, and witnesses that weren't in the accident, but they were crossing uh, the street just down the road when it all happened and they saw something. So a police officer would want to do all of that and bring it together and then make an informed decision based upon what they see, not just believing what somebody said. And so you can see how the amount of work that actually goes into confirming that things are true is simply something that is not appealing because it requires a lot of work. And so as Christians, we have to be mindful of slothfulness in our desire to claim that which is true. As Christians, I believe all of us in the church should be reliable sources of truth regarding everything. If you're telling a co-worker that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, but you always are wrong about everything else, do you think they're going to believe you when it comes to Jesus? Probably not. So we need to be people who people know, hey, you might not always be the breaking news source guy, but when you say it, it's true. As you establish that rapport with people and build a bridge of trust, they can then and are more likely to listen to the most weighty and significant truth in all of human history, which is the story, the truth of God come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so friends, we must be careful to observe the principle that is being taught to us in Exodus 23.1, refuse to enable the spread of falsehood. Number two, stand up for the truth even when it goes against the majority. Stand up for the truth even when it goes against the majority. The rabbi Umberto Casuto said this regarding this verse. He said, if you see many tending in their views or their acts in a wrong direction, do not go with them. Even if they constitute the overriding majority, endeavor to swim against the tide if the tide flows toward evil. And I believe that is sage advice. If the flow is towards evil, do not go with it. It is not always wrong to go with the flow. It's only wrong to go with the flow if the flow is towards evil. If the flow, by the grace of God, it, it seems like it, it, it rarely is. But let's say the flow were going towards the good, then hey, by all means, go with the flow. But any and every time the flow is going towards evil, you must swim upstream. You must refuse to go, refuse to go along with the tide towards evil. Now, I believe that this is true whether we're in a Christian majority or a non-Christian majority. In other words, it's I think it's fairly easy sometimes, depending on where you are, to say, oh, well, I'm doing that, when in actuality you aren't. In other words, it's it's easy. If, if you live in a primarily non-Christian culture, but you spend almost all of your time in a, in a Christian subculture, you can feel like, well, I'm going against the flow here, but sometimes Christians do dumb things. Sometimes Christians don't always believe the right things. They venture into extra-biblical, non-biblical, and even anti-biblical ideas and things and behaviors. And if Christians are doing things that are wrong and going down the wrong way, 
you must swim upstream from them too. Again, hopefully we're, we're all on ultimately going the right direction towards heaven, but I've seen it many times where Christians are going down a bad place and I'm blown away at how many Christians are just following them right on down. And they say to themselves, well, I'm against the, the Christian non, I'm against the non-Christian majority. Yeah, but you're just mindlessly following th these Christians who are saying unbiblical, anti-biblical stuff. And again, you need to be loyal to, this is where the scriptures come in because ultimately, again, I love the church. The church is intended to be a pillar and buttress of the truth, but the church can and has erred in its history. We all know that. So it's the Bible. It's that uh, Protestant Reformation principle, sola scriptura. At the end of the day, we got to come back to the Bible. And if people are going outside the Bible and they're going against the Bible, even if they're called Christians, you can't flow down that stream with them. We've got to be willing to swim upstream against any majority that is being anti-biblical in what it affirms. Lastly, and so that was verse 2. Again, uh, let's read that. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. Again, we're seeing this all over the place. We're seeing this in court cases. We're seeing this in uh, celebrity entertainment stories that are out there. Truth is just being ruled by the mob many times. It is like the old frontier days of the Wild West. If they thought that guy was a robber, then man, they're just going to forget the courts, forget hearings, forget witnesses and evidence. They're just going to grab the guy, take him outside and, and string him up and hang him. And that's what's happening in the culture around us. And we should not be comfortable with the fact that right now, that's largely just happening in society, but not necessarily the courtroom. But friends, the more and more society goes that way, it becomes mob justice and it perverts the nature of truth, eventually the court system itself will go in the same direction. It will only hold out for so long because eventually the people occupying those positions as lawyers and judges will be people who were born and raised in a post-truth culture. So again, we cannot take Total comfort in the fact that in, in numerous cases, sometimes courts seem to be holding the ground. They're not, they're, I mean, they're barely holding the line, friends. They're not causing any kind of cure. We've got to do that by recovering truth in this post-truth culture. And we're being told here in God's word not to go with the crowd when it is for evil. Lastly, number three, do not distort the truth even when it benefits a disadvantaged person. Let me say that again. Number three, do not distort the truth even when it benefits a disadvantaged person. Look at verse three. You shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. Now, this is interesting because I think the majority of the warnings are against favoring the rich. And that makes sense. I would think that would normally be the way it goes. But what if a particular case or even a culture arose in which people were suggesting that the right thing to do was to pervert truth in order to favor a poor person, which represents a disadvantaged category? The Bible says that's actually wrong. You must not pervert the truth or change it for anyone, whether they're rich and poor, black and white, male or female, or whatever they identify as, you don't change it. Truth is not something that is of just private opinion. 
It is that which corresponds to reality. And the scriptures are affirming that truth is so holy and related to the character of God that it cannot be changed for anyone, including a disadvantaged person. Commentator Waldemar Jansen says this about this verse. He says, quote, This law warns against partiality in favor of the poor. Such partiality may be nobly motivated by compassion, but it nevertheless holds potential for injustice. Now, friends, I know there's many reasons today why people are creating various categories of disadvantaged people. And again, as Christians, we should be compassionate towards all people and especially disadvantaged people. So we're not against that idea as Christians. We should be there doing that. As a matter of fact, I would hope we're the first ones there with disadvantaged people showing the compassion and love of Jesus. But we're not showing the compassion of love of Jesus when we pervert truth. We're doing an injustice to God and to all human beings when we do that. And so the scriptures say, even for the sake of a poor person, which some people may genuinely out of a sense of compassion and well-meaning may want to pervert truth, in order to benefit a disadvantaged person, yet the scripture says that's wrong. And of course, we know many people may say that they care about the disadvantaged person when they attempt to manipulate truth, but really that is just a ploy for some other agenda. But in the biblical case here, verse 3, it doesn't matter what their motivation is. You shall not do it. And so the scriptures bring together these three great practices. I am convinced that if American society would adopt and practice just these three principles of truth and justice, that we would recover a more truthful culture that would make pointing to the truth of Christ more sensible. However, this message is not primarily a message for the mass of non-believers out there running around with their heads cut off. It is primarily a message to you and I, the church. It is time for the judgment to begin at the household of God, 1 Peter 4.17. We must put these three things into practice this week ourselves. And as we do them, we must be rightly motivated to do so. As Christians, we are not to do these things merely so we can get our culture back or make our country a more comfortable place to live, but first and foremost, because we want to be like Jesus. And Jesus never once failed in these three areas. And so it's out of supreme love for Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. We obey and embrace all truth in his name. Let's pray. Father, I come before you this morning and I thank you so much that your word is truth and that your word is a light in a dark world. Lord, I just pray for the truths of this message, these truths of your holy scriptures be applied to our hearts and minds this week so that we can be a part of the change we want to see in the world, that we can reflect Jesus as though he were here among us through being conformed to his image as a church. Lord, help us to reflect these things into our world. And Lord, help us to have an influence and an impact on the world around us. 
supremely and most significantly regarding the truth of the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ, and yet also and related to it as its servant, truth in general, truth in the public square, truth is that which corresponds to reality. Lord, help us to be salt and light until the day you come to establish your kingdom in truth forever. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, for those of you that would like to continue this morning's worship service with tithes and offerings, you can do so in two different ways. Uh, first of all, you can continue to worship the Lord by going to our website, which is imagechurchoc.com. And there's a giving tab up, up at the top, and you can click there and give either using your debit or credit card. You can also, if you prefer, mail in a check or money order cashier's check to our church mailing address, which is 27762. Antonio Parkway, L is in Larry 514, and that's Ladera Ranch, California, 92694. Again, all that information is on our website, imagechurchoc.com. Just a real quick announcements before we go. Our Wednesday night midweek Bible study is 7 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time now. So be sure to join us as we're going through the book of 2 Corinthians. Again, being in God's truth, Jesus said, John 17, 17, thy word is truth. Friend, you need truth. We're, we're picking up all kinds of stuff out there. So be in the Word. Join us in our studies Wednesday night, 7 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. Next week, we have an in-person outdoor church service in San Juan Capistrano. So mark your calendars if you're in the area. Be sure to join us for that. Also, the big announcement, we will be meeting in person on Easter Sunday. So friends, join us if you're a parent. Bring your kids. We're going to have an Easter egg hunt after service. We're going to have a bounce house and other games and crafts and things for the kids. So it's going to be a great celebration for your children. So any families out there with kids, bring your kids. We would love to welcome them. We believe it'll be a beautiful, wonderful time of celebrating the resurrection and truth of our Lord. So I encourage you to mark your calendars. Join us in person on Easter Sunday in San Juan Capistrano. All that information will be on our website, imagechurchoc.com, as well as our Facebook page, ImageChurchOC. Now, friends, let me close with this prayer of blessing over you before we go. May the grace and truth of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all this week. God bless you all. Be God's agents of truth and change in the world. We'll see you next Sunday.